Well, Roseanne Dunson was the only one happy about the college football thing up there. That's what I noticed. So <laughs> she is raising her fist in the air. Oh, good morning. My name is Brian, and it's good to be with you for week number two of our Grace series. Last week, we, we just focused on this truth that grace is greater than our disagreements. And I was so thankful that several of you shared some stories with me this past week about how that very phrase helped you when you encountered some difficult people, some people who disagreed with you. And today, we wanna focus on this other truth about grace, and it is this, that grace is greater than our mistakes, greater than my mistakes, greater than your mistakes. Etched in my memory is me writing a college paper the clock was somewhere around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, so that tells you what kind of pre-planning I had done. And I'm trying to keep my eyes open. I'm trying to finish this paper. It's several pages long. I can't remember how long it was. And I remember crossing my legs, and as I crossed my legs, kicking the power cord out from the wall, and the whole computer just... And I remember at that time, you know, you pray some really weird prayers, like, God... I'll do anything if you let this paper still be there. I'll never procrastinate a paper again. I'll do anything. And so I, you know, I plugged the computer back in. And this is, you know, a few years ago. So turning the computer back on doesn't take 10 seconds. It takes, you know, five or six minutes. The hamsters are running to turn the wheel that powers the computer. All that finally turns back on and the paper pops up and I'm only missing like three sentences. I'm like, oh, grace. It's grace because grace is undeserved kindness. And God exhibits undeserved kindness to us. And it's easy to talk about it in a story like that. But let me tell you another story. I had a friend in, in high school. He, he wasn't ever a close friend, but he's somebody I always knew. And I played some ball with him and we connected a time or two after high school. But then I, I had not seen him or heard from him for a long time, but I'd heard he was having lots of trouble in life. And then I got a call one day in my college dorm that he had taken his own life. And if you've ever experienced that with a loved one, you know the, the questions you start asking. Fair or not, you begin asking questions like, what should I have done? What could I have done differently? And why didn't I see this? And why did I not do more? And some of you have experienced that and asked those questions. And we come to a sermon like this, it gets very real in our lives because we all wish we had some things that we could take back. We've all made some mistakes, whether small or big or anywhere in between. And then we get really serious and we ask, is grace really greater than that? Is it really greater than the mistakes and the sin in my life? Kyle Eilman says, our ability to appreciate grace is in direct correlation to the degree to which we acknowledge our need for it. So there's a part about guilt that is healthy for us, but only if that guilt takes us to grace. If we just hang on to the guilt, it cripples us. It ruins us. And so God wants to take your guilt and lead you to grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 19. That will be our text this morning. And I got to just set it up a little bit, telling you about tax collectors. You may know that they were some of the most hated people uh, of Jesus' day. Because when a tax collector showed up, he never showed up to say, hey, just stopping by to check on you. 
He was showing up to take your money and your stuff. Sometimes the fishermen would be coming off the lake back to shore. Tax collectors would be waiting for them saying, give me half of all you caught. There were many people who were literally starving to death, being taxed to death because the taxation was so high. To make matters worse, not only did the Roman government impose these high taxes, especially on the Jewish people, but then they had tax collectors who were corrupt. And if the Roman government said, give us 50%, then the tax collectors might come along and say, "Uh uh-uh, you owe the Roman government 75%. So they would take 25%, put it in their own pocket, then pass on the 50% to the Roman government, and you see what was happening here. It was, they were corrupt, they were, they were dirty, they were hated, and sometimes they were even Jewish. So they had taken a job with the Roman government and they were seen as traitors to their own people, uh, taking advantage of other Jews. So they were a hated bunch, and that helps bring us to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jer- Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was a short guy, so he does the smart thing. He finds a tree, uses that to his advantage, and he thinks he's going to have a great view of Jesus, but I'm sure he never expected Jesus to stop because when Jesus is coming, lots of times it's like a parade. There's all these people ahead and behind and following and around, and he stops right there, and he looks up at Zacchaeus. And the crowd saw Zacchaeus a certain way. In fact, many in the crowd would have looked away from Zacchaeus, but Jesus looks at him because he knew that God's grace was greater than even the sins of Zacchaeus. And so he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And that sounds weird in our culture. We don't just often invite ourselves to someone else's house. But in their culture, that was a high honor. And so Zacchaeus would have been overwhelmed and he says, absolutely, and gives Zacchaeus some credit here. I mean, he agrees. He gets out of the tree. He could have made up some excuse, but he's ready for grace. But then there's other people. There's people who are watching this whole thing happen. And as they're watching, the text says they begin to mutter and complain. They were muttering and complaining that Jesus was showing grace to Zacchaeus. And we need to pause here and think back to Hebrews 12, which we read last week. Don't let anyone miss out on the grace of God. Don't let anyone miss out on the grace of God. And here were these people looking and hoping that they would miss out on the grace of God. 
They don't deserve the grace of God. He's a tax collector. And look at, look at the party he has. You know Zacchaeus' friends, who they're going to be, right? Just like him. Wealthy. Dirty money everywhere. Uh, people who have taken advantage of the poor. People who uh, live a sinful life and they know it and they throw parties and they're all together and people hate them. And that's who Zacchaeus has. And yet here's Jesus showing grace. And the people are muttering. They're frustrated. When Jesus gets mad in the New Testament, it usually has something to do with this. Because somebody is making it easy for someone else to miss the grace of God. And for the people muttering, I think about myself. Times that I've muttered about someone. And I'm sure you can think of times that you've muttered about someone. And it might be about someone's appearance, their hair, or what they wear, or the, their politics, or their relationships, or their past. And we, we begin to nitpick and complain and to mutter. And when we mutter, we bring other people on board and they start muttering as well. It's one of the bad things about muttering is it spreads. And they're muttering and complaining. And I think if Jesus could show up to us today when we start muttering about other people and complaining about other people, I think Jesus would say three things. He would say, I love you, but I love them too. So knock it off. I think Jesus would say it real strongly because he always does. When people mutter about someone potentially receiving grace, Jesus says, knock it off. Quit it. You're angering me just as a good father would be angry if one child was beating up the other. Because the father's looking and saying, I love you both. So knock it off. I'm not going to let you mistreat one or try to throw roadblocks between this person and grace. And Zacchaeus responds in this beautiful way. He does three things. He stands up, he speaks up, and he settles up. He stands up, and so all eyes are on him. He kind of gets, you know, a command of the party. Maybe he, he taps his, his dish with a spoon. And then he speaks up, and he says, look, Lord. He calls him Lord. He acknowledges who Jesus is. And then he settles up. Did you catch how much money we're talking about? He says, I'm, he's going to follow the law of Moses, which is if you cheat somebody, you pay them back four times the amount you cheated. That's pretty severe. But he says, I'm going to pay back four times anybody I've cheated. But not only that, he's going to follow the law of Jesus, which isn't a strict rule. You have to pay exactly this amount. But Jesus' law is generosity. May you have a generous heart. And Zacchaeus says, I'll give half of all I've got to the poor. Jesus didn't tell him he had to do that. Why did he do that? Because grace entered his heart. And when grace comes in, our hearts are transformed and changed. I'm thinking about the difference between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler we read about a few weeks ago. Remember, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and when Jesus uh, challenges him to give to the poor, the text says he walked away sad. So he kept what he had and walked away sad. Zacchaeus gave it away, and look at him. He's having the best party of his life. He's full of joy. See, that's what happens when we give, it's just when God's grace gets a hold of us, 
We don't feel like we have to give. We feel like we want to give. It's unbridled generosity. And we begin giving. And if you've ever given like that, you know that there are few things in the world that are more fun than to give with great generosity. It is so much fun. It is great joy. And so when God says, I want you to give, he's not doing that to make us down, to make us less than, to make us happy. He's actually giving us a beautiful gift because he knows that it will bring us great joy. And then Jesus says this, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. See, tax collectors were, were so despised that there were rabbis who taught that a tax collector could not be part of the house of Abraham. He could not be considered. If he was a Jew, he was no longer considered part of one of God's people. He was out of Abraham's house, out of Abraham's lineage, no longer one of God's people. And so Jesus is saying something really intentional here. He's addressing that thought because he says, Mm-mm, Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. He's in. He's one of God's people, one of God's children. He's not on the outside looking in because I accept him. I show grace to him. I bring him to me. It's a beautiful thing. My friend Kyle tells a story about his Uncle Dave. And I actually know Kyle's Uncle Dave because his Uncle Dave took us water skiing a time or two. And Kyle would describe his Uncle Dave as being a really great uncle who cared about people and was nice and didn't really get in trouble. But there was something always heavy with him, something like on his shoulders. It was almost like he had always just gotten off a really long day of work. You could tell something was happening, but nobody knew what that might be, and they just kind of ignored it for decades. But a few years ago, Kyle got a really strange uh, note from someone saying he would like to talk, and Kyle began to talk to this person, and this person named Wes began to tell Kyle his story. And Wes said, "Um, I I was adopted when I was uh, very small, and I've never known who my biological father is. And I've always wondered, but I follow Jesus now with my life, and I'm so overwhelmed by grace that I've been thinking about my biological dad. And if I could ever just find my dad, I think I'd want him to know that I forgive him for giving me up for adoption. If he has any guilt or shame about that, I want him to know that I'm okay and that God loves him too. And that's when he dropped the bombshell on Kyle. He said, Kyle, my biological dad is your Uncle Dave. Kyle had no idea, and Kyle agreed to try to be peacemaker if he could, but Wes didn't want to make his biological dad have anything more that was awkward or even more in shame. He didn't want to be pushy, but he wanted to at least offer, and so the family contacted uh, Kyle's Uncle Dave and began to tell him the story, and Kyle talked, and it took a little while, but after a little while, Dave said, "I, I think I'm ready to meet him. And they lived a long ways from each other, and Kyle's house was kind of in between, and so they decided to have a little family reunion in Louisville. So they showed up there, and they met, and the family was inside looking out the windows as his father, Kyle's Uncle Dave, 
And his biological son, Wes, who's now a young adult and married, met for the very first time. And they hugged and they cried and Dave asked for forgiveness. Wes offered it. And it was a happy celebration for the family and Wes gave his dad a watch. And Kyle didn't know what was significant about the watch other than it was a nice watch. But later on, Kyle got to look at the watch. And on the back of the watch, there were just two words, pure grace. He wanted his dad to know about pure grace. And his dad accepted that grace and was so overwhelmed and his life has been changed in many good ways and told Kyle, you can share the story with anybody who will listen to it. Because I want people to know about God's grace for them and how that can transform their life and allow them to give grace. If a son can offer grace to a father who was never there or a father who maybe did not even want to know he existed or whatever he was thinking, then I can offer grace to other people's mistakes. And I can accept God's grace for my mistakes. The Bible is really clear. We've all sinned. The price we are to pay is death. But then grace comes. And it's that same kind of grace, that beautiful thing of God saying, I take you, I even adopt you. Adoption is such a beautiful thing. It's a picture of grace, and God says, I bring you to me, and Zacchaeus, I bring you to me, and it's wonderful. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I think there's such honesty there that sometimes when we talk about mistakes, we always start thinking about everybody else's mistakes. Paul says, I'm the worst of them. And we could learn from his honesty there. Because Paul knows his own mistakes. I know my mistakes. We need to own up to them. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. John Wee said, there's more grace in God than sin in people. I'm gonna mention that quote a few times this series because I want you to really believe it, that no matter your sin, God's grace is bigger. No matter the sin in other people, God's grace is bigger. There may be times in your life where you need to protect yourself because you're in a place where you're being abused and used and you still need to have some boundaries and that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't care about grace. That's being wise. But there's still grace offered. Even when we have boundaries with people who may be hurting us in our life, we still pray that they would receive God's grace. We still pray that God would do a work in our heart to offer grace and forgiveness to other people, even if those boundaries are still in place. God wants to offer you grace for your greatest mistakes. We're going to do something today that is probably going to be more important than me saying a whole lot more. But in your, in your bulletin, there's a sermon page there, and 
at the bottom there's just that word grace, and then there's the big greater than sign. And if you don't have a, a sermon page with you, you can do this on a piece of paper. Um, you can pray this quietly, but there's something powerful about writing. And so I want to ask you to grab a pen. There's pens in front of you if you don't have one with you. Uh, there should be some in those chairs. I want to ask you to get a pen, and I want to ask you just to kind of lean into this for a few moments, because it may be the most meaningful thing you do today. And I think I can serve you maybe best by asking you to do this. I want to ask you to just think about the mistakes in your life, because I have a hunch that there's some mistakes that you've made that in your weak moments, you begin to think they're bigger than grace. And they come back and they haunt you, you think about them at night, and it's causing harm in your relationships and maybe in your relationship with God. And I just want to give you a few minutes here where you can just reflect and ask God to remind you that his grace is greater than your mistakes. And so I just want you to list out some of those mistakes you need reminded of. Just write them on that paper. You're not going to give them to me or anybody else, but... Just let that be between you and God. If you want to share it with others, then that's fine. But between you and God, just do some brainstorming. What are some mistakes in your life? And you need reminded that grace is greater. Last week, I told you about kintsugi. It's the Japanese art form of taking shattered pottery and 
reforming it, putting it back together and making it something more beautiful than it even used to be. And if you could think about you being that piece of pottery and it's your mistakes that have wobbled you off the table onto the ground and left you in thousands of pieces, but it's God, great potter who comes and picks up those pieces and if you accept his grace, he just molds you back together into something that looks different than you were before, but is actually even more beautiful because it has his touch on it to repair. I play golf just a few times a year enough to be dangerous, and one of the things that I've noticed is that when I hit a bad shot, I always look away which is the very time that you should actually watch where the ball goes because it's going into the woods or into a field and you should be watching it really closely but the instinct is to look away and I have to really make myself watch a bad shot. And the reason I look away is because I don't like to watch my mistakes. Same is true when somebody shoots a, a picture of you that doesn't turn out all that well, you're like, delete that picture. Get rid of that. I don't want to see that anymore. And we don't like to see our own mistakes. We want to look away, and it's because of that we assume Jesus is the same. We assume Jesus doesn't want to look at our mistakes, that he doesn't want to see us, that he looks away, but that's a false assumption of God. Jesus actually looks at us in our mistakes. He still was watching us. He still has his eyes on us. He still loves us. He still cares for us. He's not looking away. Zacchaeus has made so many mistakes. And Jesus walks to the tree and he looks right up at him. He sees him. And he offers him this invitation. So when you see yourself as a mistake, know that Jesus sees you as a miracle. When you see yourself as forgettable, Jesus sees you as forgivable. When you see yourself as detestable, Jesus sees you as desirable. He turns your emptiness into joyfulness. He transforms unyielding greed into unbridled generosity. He transposes travesty into testimony. His grace is greater than your mistakes. He strolls up to the very spot where you are, and he looks at you, and he says, I want to come over. I want to be with you. I know your mistakes, but my grace is greater. I want to be with you. And oh my goodness, my friends, I hope that you will say yes, because that is an invitation you don't want to miss. This morning, we want to offer grace to you. It's not from us, it's from God. But we want you to know that when Jesus died on a cross, That was big enough for any of your mistakes. And if you want to come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, I want you to change my heart so I have the joy of Zacchaeus, I have the promise of eternity, well, some folks up at the front sides who would be glad to pray with you and talk with you. If you just want to mark on your Connect card that you want to study with someone this week, we'd be glad to connect and study God's grace. But don't miss out on God's grace. We want you to know it. If you would, would you stand and let me pray with us? God, thank you for your grace. In our minds, it even seems reckless that you would 
risk so much to love us, and yet you do. And I pray for anybody who's missing out on your grace today. Maybe they've missed out for a lifetime, and maybe they used to think they knew it, but they've begun to think their mistakes are too big. I pray today would be a day that would change. They would know your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.